My name's Vicky Neal, and I'm a mathematician at the University of Oxford. Since March 2021, I've also been having treatment, on and off, for a rare form of cancer. That's been very educational. I've been learning lots about cancer and the various treatments available. While I wish it was less personally relevant to me, I also find it fascinating. I take comfort and have great pride in knowing that I have colleagues in the mathematical community whose research helps to tackle cancer, from prevention through diagnosis to treatment. In this podcast series, Maths Plus Cancer, I'm going to sit down with some of them to find out more about their research and about the people behind the research. I'd love you to join me for our conversations to learn more about how mathematics and mathematicians are helping to combat cancer. I'm joined today by Philip Maney. Philip is Statutory Professor of Mathematical Biology and Director of the Wolfson Centre for Mathematical Biology at the Mathematical Institute, University of Oxford, and Professorial Fellow of St John's College, Oxford. He's been awarded the Naylor Prize and Lectureship by the London Mathematical Society, the Arthur T. Winfrey Prize by the Society of Mathematical Biology, and he's a fellow of the Royal Society, to mention just a few of his many prizes and fellowships. And today we are talking in the Oxford Mathematical Institute in the boardroom with this magnificent view over Oxford. It's a perfect place to discuss maths and cancer. Philip, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Vicky. I think people might be surprised at how important maths is in understanding cancer. Um, before we talk about kind of more details of your own work, I wondered whether you could give us a bit of an overview of some of the ways in which maths is relevant to understanding cancer. Okay, well, there are really two aspects of it. One is the statistical aspect of it, where um, one can look at correlations and find out, by looking at data, maybe find out that um, certain um, families are more prone to cancer, certain um, genetic backgrounds are more prone to cancer. And that simply comes from looking at a lot of data and doing data analysis using statistical methods and then finding out that um, there are these relations. And in this podcast series, we're going to be looking at some of the the statistical tools that go into that because it's really interesting, that kind of mathematical statistical techniques for these big data sets. But anyway, I interrupted. You said two ways. Let's have the second. It's really good you said that because I don't know anything about statistics, so that's fantastic. Um, So the other aspect is to look at more mechanistic aspect of uh, of cancer. And if I could give an analogy, um, uh, most people will have heard of Kepler's laws of planetary motion. So these describe how the planets move around the sun. There's mathematical equations that predict that motion. Yeah, well, well, first of all, Kepler, he was a data scientist and he looked at data and he concluded that there was a relationship between the distance that a planet is from the sun and the time it takes to evolve around the sun. But then if a new planet was discovered, then we would not know necessarily that it followed the different laws. But then along came Newton, and Newton came up with a mechanistic understanding of gravity, with gravity, and then he was able to prove mathematically that any planet that orbits around the sun will obey this law. So he took what was a correlation and he put a mechanism 
behind it. So, so to check I've understood, so Kepler was looking at the data and saying, well, based on this data, I think this is what's going on. Yep. Newton was able to look at, for example, gravity yep. and give an explanation for yep. why that was going on to give confidence that that was the right way to understand the system. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And then not only through Newton's approach could we understand how um, planets revolve around the sun, we could calculate how much time we had to run away before the big apple fell on your head. We could do all sorts of things with this. So it was very, very powerful. Okay, so, so once you've got this model, you've yeah. got this understanding, then you can apply that to other situations, not only planets moving around the sun. That's immensely powerful, actually. Yes, th th that's right. But it takes a lot longer to get to that stage. That's the, neg that's the, the drawback of it. Um, so... This is then where um, mathematical modeling comes in. So Newton's laws of motion are actually a mathematical model of, of motion. And so what we do is use mathematical models to try and understand um, how tumors evolve and how they grow with a view that if we can understand the mechanisms by how they grow, then those would automatically provide targets for drugs. So that's the, the role that mathematics plays in in this field. Fantastic. And this idea of mathematical modeling, I guess, for people not used to kind of the the way that mathematics uh, is used for cancer, this idea of modeling seems really interesting. So how, how do you start to build a mathematical model of something like the growth of a tumor? That feels like an enormous, I mean, understanding how the planets move is complicated, but tumor growth feels really complicated. Yeah. Well, the, the, you're absolutely right. So the first thing to bear in mind is that we're all modelers and mostly the models we have are verbal models so when i said to you that um you can look and you can say that um, um certain gene expressions lead to um certain types of cancer that's a model but it's a verbal model um so what we do is in mathematical modeling is to try to abstract um, the processes that go on in, in cancer. And before I go ahead with that, I'll just maybe give um, an analogy of how mathematics can be used. So suppose we have some chemical A and it produces chemical B and chemical B produces chemical C. And suppose chemical C is the one we're interested in. So if we were asked, well, how do we increase the amount of chemical C? Then we would say, well, A produces B, and B produces C, and I've got loads of A, so I'll just add more A. Makes and sense. And I'll get more C. That makes perfect sense. Biology isn't like that. That's a linear model, and that's a verbal model. Biology isn't like that. The equivalent biology would be A produces B, but B inhibits A. It degrades A. B also produces C, but C inhibits A, stimulates B to produce more, but does so after a period of time. So there's this complex interplay. This complex interaction. So now if you ask the question, how do I get more C? Should I increase A or should I decrease A? It's Don't really know. not so obvious, is it? It's not obvious. But those laws, those processes, you can put in a mathematical model. And once you have them in a mathematical model, it is pretty easy 
for that simple example I've given, to figure out. And what you would find is that depending on the interaction strengths, in some cases, adding A would increase C, and in other cases, decreasing A would increase C. It's because of the complexity. And you see this a lot in experiments, where you see that somebody does an experiment and gets a certain result, and then somebody does seemingly the same experiment and gets a different result. Now, it could be that one of them made a mistake, but more often than not, it's both experiments are correct. It's just that they were done under slightly different conditions. So both results are correct, but they're done under different conditions. And then what mathematical modeling can do by writing down, mathematically describing, by, by taking this verbal description, by converting it into mathematical equations, and then once you convert it into mathematical equations, you can use the power of mathematics to investigate all the different interactions that we simply can't think through in our mind, because we can only think linearly. We can't think um, through very, very complicated interactions. So, so having taken your complex biological system, tried to capture the essence of that with some equations, potentially you could then put those into uh, a specialist piece of software or write a new piece yes. of software, yes. and then maybe you could put in different parameters and experiment a bit to see what the consequences of those different parameters might be. Is yeah, that right? Th that, that's exactly right. And uh, as um, you mentioned, I mean, what we tried to do is get to the core issues. So we, we can't put everything into a mathematical model because to begin with, everything isn't known. Plus, if we did put what we all know into the mathematical model, we wouldn't actually be able to solve, get insight from the, the mathematical The equations model. would be too complex. The equations would be too complex. So we have to simplify. So now you might say, but then how do you know you're missing? You might be missing the key things. But that's the case with all models, because think of an experiment. In an experiment, in many cases, you put cells or a tissue into a dish and then you do experiments on it. And that's what an experimentalist would call a model. It would be called an in vitro model. You put, you put your um, tissue into a dish and you add some chemical and you say, oh, the cells behave in this way. So what have you discovered? You've discovered how cells behave in that dish. And you hope that that sort of translates yeah. to what happens in a human that, body, right. for example, but you can't and be sure. You can't be sure, because when you've taken the, the cells out of the body, you've changed all their mechanical properties, and due to the process of mechanotransduction, you've changed all their chemical properties. So what you've determined is, how do cells behave in the dish when I apply this chemical at this time? If I was to do this experiment later on today, I'd get a different result because of the circadian rhythm. So that's a mathematical model. That's a, I mean, that is a model. It's a huge abstraction to say how cells behave in a dish is how they behave 
in the human. But but we know that that can be informative, and it I guess analogously with mathematical That's models, right. even though they are simplifications yeah. necessarily, they can still be really informative for exactly. yeah. predicting what happens in yeah. a human, for example. That's right. And the bottom line is, what else can we do? We can't experiment on humans. So that's all we can do. It's the best that we can do. And therefore, the key thing is that once you've done these experiments in the dish, they give you ideas as to what might be happening. And then you test that out on the human. And the same thing with mathematical modeling. Mathematical modeling, which actually is cheaper than doing experiments in the dish, plus with the mathematical modeling, you can do many more um, different things. You can manipulate all sorts of things. So things that might literally take years for you to do in a dish, you can do in an afternoon on a mathematical model. So you can use the mathematical model to go through all sorts of different hypotheses, generate new ideas for what might be happening, and then provide um, the clinician or the experimentalist with a number of scenarios of if, well, you, you, clinician, told me that you think this is happening. So if that was happening, then if you did this experiment, you should see this result. And then they can do that experiment. And then if they don't get that result, that means they were missing something. It doesn't mean the mathematical model is wrong. It means the hypotheses that went into the mathematical modeling, in other words, the biological understanding that went into the model is lacking something. And that's where the model is really useful. It can point out where something is lacking. But moreover, the mathematician can then say, well, the model said you should have got this result. You got this different result. But if I was to change the model in this way, then it would agree with that result. So if I change the model in this way, that means I'm saying that there's this other biological process going on. Is that, is that true? Is that what's happening? So it sounds to me as though these, I was picturing how does the, what does this collaboration look like? And I was picturing maybe a clinician or somebody, um, an experimentalist coming along and saying, well, we're looking at this process and we think these are the important factors. And Philip, can you and your team kind of come up with some equations that build on those factors, describe what's going on, crunch the numbers then using those um, equations and tell us what you think will happen. And then you go back to the, the clinician or the experimentalist and say, well, this is what I think will happen. But actually it sounds as though it's much more iterative than that, that you're going back to the, the experimentalist or the clinician there, testing out what the mathematical model has predicted. They're going, well, actually in reality, that's a really good fit, or actually that doesn't seem quite right. Can we go back and see, can we tweak the model a bit so that the, the data does match up? And it sounds as though there's a lot of backwards and forwards between you and the scientists in the lab. Well, typically what happens is that, um, well, I, if I go to a collaborator and say, could you work with me? I've got this mathematical model. I've predicted these results. Um, that by and large hasn't worked uh, because you know, they've got, their own stuff to do. They've got constraints on their lab time. And, Ex yeah. Exactly. What has worked is that when people have come to me and asked me the questions, and as it's turned out, the, the two or three of the best collaborations I've had are people that have come with 
who actually were mathematicians or physicists or engineers who then converted to becoming biologists or clinicians. And they then can spot when they have a problem where they say, oh, this is amenable to mathematical analysis. And I can do the experiments, but I don't have time to do the mathematics. And now here's where we can um, ask a mathematical modeler. And I guess they, they speak both languages, so they can yeah. be a bit of an interface between the experimental and the mathematical. That, that, that's right. And in fact, one thing I should add to that, that is that this is now being recognized um, throughout the scientific community that really the forefront of a lot of science now requires us to move away from these artificial boundaries we have of mathematician, physicists, biologists, etc., and to blur those boundaries. And so we do now have um, doctoral training courses where people are given a background in a lot of different scientific areas. Now, really, to ask somebody to be an expert in one area is a big ask. So to ask them to be experts in more than one area, you know, typically that doesn't happen. But training people to have expertise in one area, but to be able to speak the language of the other areas is, I think, very, very important. So it's not that you have to be a trained mathematician who then became a biologist, and only then can you collaborate with a mathematical biologist, but you could be a biologist who sort of knows some aspects of mathematics and then can pinpoint when your problem would benefit from a mathematical approach and then go and talk to a mathematician. That's really interesting. It's definitely highly interdisciplinary, isn't it? I'm just going to interrupt briefly to let you know that if you're enjoying this episode of Maths Plus Cancer, then please do head to ox.ac.uk forward slash cancer to find the other episodes in the series in which my amazing guests tell us about some of the many intriguing ways in which maths and stats are helping us to understand and tackle cancer. One of the things I wondered was how much you see a direct impact for patients of your work and to what extent your work is more fundamental and then there need to be subsequent stages before that has an impact for, for example, cancer patients. Yeah, at the moment it's it's more fundamental and it's more sort of suggesting ideas because my view is that eventually the person who's really going to solve the problem is going to be the clinicians and the experimentalists. What the mathematicians can do with mathematical modeling is to give ideas that may be counterintuitive to the clinicians um, that they could maybe test and then find that, that it works. Certainly there are some clinical trials going on that are um, in early stages that are based on some mathematical models. But as you know, a clinical trial, whether it's based on mathematical model or on experimental models has to go through many different rounds before it would eventually get approved um, in the um, you know, in, in the hospitals. I guess anybody yeah. doing research in cancer in any way knows that this is this is a long game. This it is, is a long game. This is not that, about quick right. results. Yeah, yeah. And of course, although we're talking about cancer, I mean, cancer is a series of diseases. And so some... Um, approaches that might be appropriate for one type of cancer may be not appropriate at all for another type of cancer. So that makes it even more difficult in terms of getting um, 
the appropriate data and the appropriate amounts of data, there's a whole series of diseases. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and yes, rare cancers don't have very much data because no, there aren't that, very many right. people who have yeah. them. Yeah, that, that's, that's right. You mentioned that sometimes the models can produce counterintuitive yeah. predictions. Do you have any kind of favourite specific examples from your own work? Well, um, I've got... Uh, well, there's one example where... Um, we were um, working with um, somebody called Bob Gatenby, who's a physicist who became a radiologist, and now he's, a, a, he's chair of radiology, and he works at the Moffat Cancer Centre. And they were looking at um, a model of... Um, they had a verbal model of um, ductal carcinoma, so breast cancer, and they were talking about evolution, and the idea that uh, the cells would evolve from one type to another type. So basically what happens is cells have to be attached to a surface. And if they fall off that surface, they die. So the first thing that the cell has to do is, if a cell is going to invade in, in the duct, for example, it needs to have a um, mutation that will allow it to survive once it's come off the, the membrane. And then it'll start to grow in, into, into the, the domain. But the nutrient is only coming from the outside of the domain. So pretty soon, it's going to run out of oxygen. So this is the scenario where you've got this cancer cell, it's got the mutation, but in yep. order for it actually to turn into a tumour that's going to cause a problem to the patient, you need the circumstances to be right. And in particular, it has to get its yeah. supply of nutrients yeah. in order right. to be able to grow and expand uncontrollably. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So if you think if you think of it as being a ball and you start growing from the, ins from the surface of the ball on the inside, but you only get a nutrient from the outside of the ball the nutrient can only penetrate a certain amount. So the cells in the middle are not getting any so nutrients. The cells are, yeah. oh, so they have to mutate to use different mechanisms of um, uh, growth uh, and um, maybe uh, in order to survive. So what um, uh, Gatenby and, and Gillies and various people had in their model, verbal model, was that you had this um, uh, progression from one type to another type, to another type. As these cells are mutating, As the cells evolving. Mutate. Right. And then eventually you would get um, a sort of super cell that could um, do everything, and then it would invade. So we decided, okay, working with them, that we would test this by using a mathematical model. So we used a mathematical model for this, which basically just said, let's consider cells as little disks. And then when they divide, there's a certain probability that they get a mutation. And then based on that, they have certain properties. And then let's go through and do all this. And what we found was that um, instead of having uh, this evolution from one type to another to another, we find that there would be a coexistence. In other words, that you wouldn't get one type and then that get replaced by another and then replaced by another. There'd be a mixture. So, so, we, so cells with these different mutations are happening at the same time. Yes, that, that, that's right. So, and so you'd still get evolution to this very damaging cell, but there'd still be these other cells left around. So then we went back to, um, we were working with Bob and we went back and said, um, you know, 
this is our prediction, that actually what you should see is pockets of these um, sort of super cells, for want of a better word, but then you see other cells still hanging around. So then they did an experiment. You know, they had some um, cancers there that they could actually um, analyze to see, and that's precisely what they found. And of course, this is one of the things that makes, um, one of the many things that makes cancer very, very difficult to, to analyze, the fact that it's not one cell type. So even, even in a single patient with yeah. a single tumour, there's different That's types right. of cells. Loads of different types of cells. And then drugs tend to target certain types of cells. And one of the things we're doing at the minute, actually, with, with the Moffitt Cancer Centre, is this idea that... So if you've got all these different types of cells and they're competing with each other because they're competing for a nutrient, for resource, then... And you can kill one of those cell types, then if you kill that cell type, you've removed the competition from the other cells. So the cells can grow now without any competition, and you don't have a drug to target those cells. I'm picturing weeds in my garden now and sort of different types of weed. I guess there's a there's a limited amount of water and nutrients in my soil. If I if I take out one type of weed that I've got a particular dislike to, that just means there's more opportunity for the others to flourish. That That's right. And in fact, you pick a very good analogy there because Gatenby and his group have been developing the idea of think of cancer as an ecology. And as soon as you think of cancer as an ecological thing. So you think of cancer cells as an invader. So a weed that's invading your beautiful lawn. Well, modeling has been going on to look at invasion or think of the gray squirrels that invaded um, the indigenous red squirrels of the UK in the last century. There have been models developed for that since the beginning of last century. Moreover, there have They've been, um, in terms of plants and things like this, people have developed strategies to control. So how can we learn from those? And um, that becomes very important. So then the idea then is, well, should we um, kill some of the cells that we can kill, but leave enough of them so they can compete with the ones we can't kill and stop them from growing? But then how do we do that? How do we know how many cells to kill? If we kill too many of them, the resistant cells will grow. If we don't kill enough of them, the sensitive cells will grow. This sounds like an ideal opportunity for you with your computer to exactly. do a mathematical model and test out scenarios. That's right. So what you can do with a mathematical model is you can test out things like you can say, um, if I was to give what's called adaptive therapy, so I give therapy, and then until the cell, the size of the tumor gets to a certain um, volume, and then I leave it to grow again. Okay, so you want to shrink the tumor to yep. a certain amount, but then kind of back Let off and see what happens. And then give the drug again, and then it contracts and then grows again. Of course, at the same time this is happening, and your analogy is fantastic because we know that plants become resistant to the what you're treating them with same thing with tumor cells 
So slowly, these sensitive cells will become resistant. So eventually, you're going to get this population that will just grow to infinity. The question then is, could you, by giving this adaptive therapy, could you um, make that push the time back for that? And so what we can do with the mathematical model is we can say, right, the standard of care, which is called maximum tolerated dose, which you just hit the tumor with as much drug as you can that the patient can tolerate, versus this fluctuating um, drug dosage. Can we see under what conditions that fluctuating um, drug dosage would give more time than the maximum tolerated dose? Uh, and that's an ideal problem for mathematics where, like you say, you can ask questions like, what should the limit be? At what point should we decide to give our drug again? Um, how much drug should we give? And we also then have to bear in mind that um, the practicalities of, of this, like maybe you, you know, practically it might be that your model predicts you should give the drug at the weekend, but there's nobody in at the weekend to give the drugs. So that's the sort of way in which you can then have what's called a constrained optimization problem, We've, and which again is a very mathematical problem has been looked at um, in all, all different contexts. I think it's a really interesting example because it, we, we, you talked a little bit about kind of mathematical modeling, maybe thinking about how tumors grow, for example. But I think also using a mathematical model to test out different treatment scenarios, I think that seems really interesting. And, uh, and also the, the, the limits of that, that actually there's a patient behind all of this with their quality of life and the practical realities of a health system uh, managing this patient's treatment and all of those kind of things. So you, but, but the ability to use the mathematics to explore different scenarios and say, well, if we had this treatment regime or that tra treatment regime, what might that look like for the tumour? And then to be able to discuss that with the clinicians and think about, well, in, in, from a patient perspective and from a clinician perspective, how does this work in reality? That seems like a really interesting example of the power of mathematical modeling. Absolutely. And another example of where the mathematical modeling um, can be helpful, and again, people have, have done this. I mean, it's not our work, it's the work of other people like Kristen Swanson and, and in fact, Jim Murray, who started this, who used to be professor of mathematical biology here, um, is the idea that if, if you look at when you um, visualize a tumor in um, uh, using whatever machines you, you use, you only see part of it because you can't see all of it because you don't have the technology. And this is a bit like an iceberg where you see the top of an iceberg and you know that in fact, there's a lot of it you can't see. So as a clinician, you have to decide, well, I've seen this tuber, so how much do I extra do I need to cut out? And what a These are the surgical margins. The surgical the margin, yeah. And what a mathematical model can do is it, because a mathematical model doesn't have any limits in terms of, um, I can't see my solution if it's below a certain value. The mathematical model will give you the, the um, a prediction of the cancer cell density from zero to whatever. So even when there are tiny, even tiny numbers of cancer cells. Yeah. So there, therefore, you can use the mathematical model to say that if you see this amount of, of cancer, then 
there may be this extra amount. It can give you an idea of, of as you mentioned, the surgical limit. So a surgeon in an operating theatre, I guess, removing a tumour, it's not like removing a golf ball or something no, with nice clean edges. Right. He's got these fuzzy edges yeah. and the model is helping the surgeon say, well, if this is what I can see what's going on yeah. with the cancer cells, I know I need this much extra margin to try to catch the cancer cells that I can't yeah. see. That- that's, that's, that's right. And at the moment, the surgeon is using a model and the model is, um, well, in the past, when I saw something that looked like this, I removed this extra bit and that helped. So I'll remove that extra bit. And we are providing different mathematical model, which says that, um, which then actually means that it could actually inform. So for that model to work where you, where the surgeon says, well, in the past, I've seen this, I can remove the extra. That requires you to have done a lot of this. So what about the surgeon starting out for the first time who doesn't have that experience? Well, of course, you can work with someone who's got a lot of experience. But this could be a way of giving independence. And from a patient point of view, you don't want to have more tissue removed than necessary because that can have a real impact on somebody's life. Uh, Absolutely, because particularly this particular cancer we're talking about is glioblastoma, which is in the brain. And of course, there in particular, you really don't want to remove more than you have to remove. It's such interesting work. So you clearly are working in collaboration with people in lots of different fields. How how do these collaborations start? Do people come to you and say, Philip, we've got this idea. Can you build us a model? Do you have interesting mathematical ideas and go and find clinicians and talk to them? How how does it happen? Well, what I find, um, so one of the aspects about, I mean, typically you find more um, mathematicians or engineers or physicists going into biology than vice versa. And the reason for that, to some extent, is that Mathematics is is sort of like built on a pyramid. You have to start off with um, a lot of groundwork theory that you need to know. And then as you specialize, you sort of narrow and and build up. And so even though, for example, as you mentioned, I work in differential equations, I need to know stuff about linear algebra and things like that. And if I apply my equations in some context, I might need to know geometry and things like this. But biology tends to be built more as pillars so that you can take, I mean, not all biology, but a lot of it, you can focus in on one aspect of the biology, learn that without having to know all the other aspects. And of course, the key thing with all of this is not be scared to ask silly questions. Okay, There's no such thing as a silly question. There's only silly answers. Um, <laughs> And working with biologists, you can say, look, I don't understand this. And they'll very quickly be able to tell you the answer. In fact, in most cases, if you don't understand something, it's probably because it isn't understood. So there are many, many examples of mathematicians, mathematicians, physicists, engineers going into, into mathematical biology there are some examples of people going in the other direction, but not as many. Um, and my approach is that a, a good mathematical modeler should be a lazy mathematical modeler. And that is someone who will, first of all, say, well, why can't you do more experiments? Why can't you just think this through and get the result? What is the issue you're having here that defies your logic. And I guess you have to understand that complexity to know what's important, going to be important right. when you build your model, yeah. what assumptions you need to make and so yeah, on. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. To really get to the core of 
Why is this an issue? Why can't it be resolved by just doing another experiment? And then when you understand that, they say, right, this is ripe for a mathematical model. This is where a mathematical model can give added help. Because that's the key thing. You want to be able to enrich the science rather than um, trying to do something that actually could have been done easier by just thinking through it with a bit of common sense. I, th I think that's a really interesting point to understand the limitations of what mathematical yeah. modelling can do. And in the same way that the experimentalists have constraints on lab space yeah. and time, there's constraints on your time. Yeah. And where can you have the most impact, I guess, with yeah. your with your modelling? That's right. And another aspect of this is to say, well, if we were to come up with a mathematical model and some understanding of, of this, what experiments could you do to, to validate our model? Because you need to validate the model before you take it further into the clinic. And if you can't do those experiments yet, then maybe this is a bit too early to do a mathematical model. So it's, it's, it's picking the right time as well as the right yeah, problem. That, 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 that's right. I'd, I'd love to understand more about how you got into this field. You, you grew up in Northern Ireland and then you came to yeah. study maths here in Oxford as an undergraduate. Yes. Was it an easy decision for you to decide that you wanted to do maths at university or were there other competing options? Well, um, so this is where um, it's a bit embarrassing. So I decided to do mathematics because of laziness, <laughs> truth be told. Well, you've just said that as an asset in a mathematical <laughs> model. Because what happened was in physics, I remember we'd been taught simple harmonic motion and we were shown the pendulum back and forth, back and forth, and then wrote lots of notes on how this works and all this and all that sort of stuff. And then I remember in, um, uh, in mathematics, the mathematics, uh, Mr. Irvine said, right, now we're going to do um, simple harmonic motion. And I thought, oh no, not another um, book of notes to write. And then he wrote down one mathematical equation. And that's all you needed. There's the power of a mathematical yeah. model right there. You can understand the motion of a pendulum understand with one equation. Just from that one equation and having the techniques. And so then I thought, yeah, that, that looks like fun. Um, and then in those days, you had to do um, entrance exam. Well, you had to take a year out to do entrance exam. I mean, you still have to do entrance exam now, but you do it during school time. And luckily, um, our school did have a, a mathematics teacher who had the ability to supervise for seventh term exam. So I did that and then um, came here. And then in my third year, so I, I find I really enjoyed differential equations. Which, in fact, is exactly what Which you need exactly for simple do, harmonic motion. That, that, that's yeah. right, yeah. And then in my third year, I went to a course which is called Differential Equations, and it was given by Jim Murray, and I didn't know who Jim Murray was at the time. But then he motivated each application through biology or ecology or epidemiology. Which was absolutely his research expertise. Which was his expertise. I mean, he was one of the founders of mathematical biology, which, of course, I didn't know at the time, being an ignorant undergraduate. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, this is really fun. And so I went up to him and said to him, um, you know, he, he mentioned that there was a possibility of doing research in mathematical biology with... Um, with an, an, another sort of group. And I asked him, um, I said, I'm interested in that. And, um, and he basically said to me, 
are you, are you going to get a first? And of course, that's always a touchy subject when, as an undergraduate, I mean, how do you answer that? Right. How well are you going to do in yeah, your exams? That, that's it's right. Basically, how well are you going to do? And I, I said, well, I think so. And he said, right, well, then you should come and work with me. Don't do that project, work with me. And then that's how I started it. And did you, did, did you suddenly have to learn loads of biology? This is a really kind of maybe a silly question, but it seems like you have to know lots of biology to do mathematical biology. Well, the thing is that what I found was that I, I just ended up learning what was needed. And the key thing with this is working with biologists because then you can ask them the questions and then you can learn it. That sounds great, like a great way to learn, actually, yeah. having access to experts the, who will take pleasure in teaching you. Yeah, the, the, that's right. And I think one thing where um, it's easier to go from mathematics into mathematical biology than the other way, because in mathematics, mathematics is built like a pyramid. There's a lot of groundwork and knowledge you need to know and then you build on that and build on that and build and on that. And as you specialise, that pyramid narrowing. Yeah. It's narrow. There's not so much of that in biology. On your website, you, you list over 60 um, PhD students whose work you've supervised, as well as um, mentoring and supervising postdoctoral researchers and undergraduate and master's students. What is it that you enjoy about that aspect of your work? My supervisor was on, was on sabbatical in the US uh, when I was in my final year, and he, he took me with them. So my thesis is written on the US paper, which is smaller, which means that my thesis, which is also up on these shelves, is actually smaller. It looks up to the other thesis. And that is a perfect analogy because I look up to my graduate students because they have done things that I wouldn't have been able to do. And I just love it that by complete accident, that analogy is on my bookshelf that I see every day. I can see the joy in your face as you <laughs> yes. describe that. Uh, I think that's a wonderful legacy. Um, what advice would you give to somebody starting out in their studies now who has an interest in applying mathematics to cancer, for example? I, I think one thing important in choosing a, a doctorate is to choose something that you enjoy um, because enjoyment is the, is the big um, payoff of doing mathematics, or of doing a DPhil, I should say. And so when you're choosing a project, I mean, of course, th the enjoyment might be that you really want to solve this scientific problem, and therefore you um, are prepared to use whatever techniques there are to solve that problem. Enjoyment might be that you really enjoy using a certain type of mathematics, and you want to try and address the problem using that mathematics. If you do that, I mean, certainly there are certain problems that um, you know that's the right technique to apply. But you may find if you're, I mean, this is what I call is, are you someone who wants to be um, problem driven or technique constrained? So is it the application of it that excites you or is it that you've got this particular tool in your yeah. toolkit that you really want to use? That, that, that's, that's right. Um, so if you're driven by the problem you want to solve, then you might end up having to do some mathematics that you're not particularly excited about doing. But that's compensated for by the fact that you're really excited to solve the problem. So I think that choosing um, a problem that you really will enjoy doing is what's important and getting enjoyment out of your research. That's the important thing. 
it definitely sounds as though there are lots of opportunities for, for students who are interested in this area to, to do their own little, perhaps small part of pushing that um, frontier of knowledge forwards. There certainly is. Uh, and so as well as collaborating with colleagues here at the university, we also have cl- collaborations with um, pharmaceutical companies. I mean, there's a program, a doctor training program, where um, the pharmaceutical companies are then um, proposed projects in, in cancer, but also in, in other subject areas. And um, we then co-supervise students um, in those. And in fact, some of the students so much enjoy working with pharmaceutical companies that they actually then have um, then begun their career after their doctorate by going and working with the pharmaceutical companies. Fantastic. So, so many different avenues. Yes, that, that, that's right. Philip, thank you so much for, for your time and the conversation today, which I found fascinating, but also for all of your groundbreaking and inspiring research. Well, thank, thank you, Vic. It was very enjoyable chatting to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Maths Plus Cancer. I hope that you found the conversation as interesting as I did. There are more episodes of Maths Plus Cancer, as well as features about Oxford's research into cancer, at ox.ac.uk forward slash cancer. If you're enjoying exploring how maths and stats help us to understand and tackle cancer, I'd love it if you'd tell your friends about the podcast. And please do join in on social media using the hashtag maths plus cancer. That's plus the word, not the mathematical symbol.